0: Welcome to the podcast where together every monday we explore hospitality in its very broader sense from culture and cooking cocktails and coffee nutrition and farming politics and animal welfare organic and sustainability family and business entrepreneurship and much much more come and learn with me mark rib about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses, and more importantly, the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. When in the 1990s, Guy Singh Watson started delivering boxes of organic veg to neighbours and friends, he realised he was on a winner. People loved the fact that the vegetables tasted great and were grown locally. He probably didn't realize just how big a winner it was. Today Riverford Organic Farmers supply boxes to between 50 and 60,000 households a week and have a team of over 700 people. Now I was very excited to get to speak with Guy since I've read a number of his blogs about the impact of modern farming and monoculture. Guy really brings to life the impact such approaches of mass production are having on the soil and how important soil is for all of us to be able to continue to live on planet earth. Fundamentally, I wanted to learn whether organic is really important, and how much work should we, as both the hospitality industry and the general public, be putting into thinking about not only where, but how our fruits and vegetables are grown. To say Guy has an opinion or two on this is an understatement, but he makes the case eloquently and enthusiastically for change. Now, while the business has scaled up, the guiding principle behind it has not shifted. As you'll know if you've ever watched Guy's awesome YouTube series, Guy's Rants, For him, respecting the health of our soil through traditional mixed farming rather than rigid specialisation is absolutely vital for the health of all of us. And whether you agree with Guy or not, this programme will definitely make you think about consumer choice and whether the world has gone mad in allowing us to choose delivery times to within 20 minutes or having little gem lettuces flown over from the United States. Should the era of getting what we want when we want it come to an end? Well, Let's discuss. Geising Watson, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. Very much appreciated. You're welcome. Uh, can I? Can you just uh, explain to me where we are on planet Earth, please? I've just spent the last uh, hour driving around some some tiny country lanes on a on a on a wet and wild winter's day. Where are we? Uh,
1: we're at Batterford Farm now, which is just uh, about a mile up the valley from Riverford, uh, which is where I, I farmed for. 35 years and and ran the uh, veg box business Um, it became employee owned last year and I'm taking a bit of a step back so I I, I bought this farm with Giti my wife and uh, yeah we're growing a few vegetables and uh,
0: that was your retirement plan I'm gonna sell sell the current one and and just carry on but on a smaller scale
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit weird, perhaps. I've kind of gone back to where I started 35 years ago, but it's quite nice to be doing it now with slightly less kind of commercial pressure. I don't have to be thinking at every turn, you know, whether I'm going to be able to make a margin out of this crop. Sometimes I can grow things just because I want to, and we can experiment a little bit more with sort of, you know, innovative growing techniques that I wouldn't have been able to afford to do uh, when I was a young man. You enjoying it? I am, yeah. I'm loving it, actually. Yeah,
0: good. And I'll just mention it now in case it gets really loud, but there's a there's an, a, there's an awesome little whistle that happens occasionally, isn't there? In a, in a, in a, in a, we're not in a wind tunnel. We are sat in your kitchen. Yeah, there's, there's a,
1: a gale yeah. blowing outside, and the, the vent on our door yeah. <laughs> sort of whistles. Um, I, I, I quite like it, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. no, it's
0: nice. No, 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 but just in case anybody thinks there's something <laughs> odd going on in the background. And the crackling of a wood-fired argo, which oh, yeah, is... Uh, I've
1: been away for a few days. I've just got back and just lit the Essie,
0: which I'll be cooking supper on when we finish with this amazing good well I will not take up too much of your time um so I very much you, you've become a bit of a I don't know I said say the word yeah hero font of knowledge um I went off and started doing these podcasts really talking to people in the hospitality industry so often chefs or restaurateurs or cooks but as part of it started to look at our supply chain and our food chain a little bit more and, and really that's the rabbit hole that I've gone down more and more is where does our food come from um so I'm really looking forward to getting into into soil and, and whether things should be you know, organic accreditation and all the stuff that you are a font of knowledge on. But before we do that, for people who don't know uh, Riverford as well as you do, um, it's a big operation, isn't it? Can you just explain a little bit about it? It was 50,000 boxes a week. I, I had a pizza delivery business for a little while and just trying to deliver 37 pizzas on a Friday night locally blew my mind. Can you say what does what does Riverford do now? Uh,
1: we do deliver fifty or to fifty or sixty thousand households a week, and, and most of them will take a veg box, um, which we decide the contents of. Uh, some of them will make up their own orders. You can go on our website and you know order exactly the vegetables you want, and the milk, and we do even um, sell some meat and drinks and so on. But really, vegetables is the heart of, of what we do. Yeah, so fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 deliveries a week, and that seems to have involved a business um, employing 700 staff, and we turn over 60 million a year. Wow. <laughs> and uh, we really do everything from sowing the seeds, growing, harvesting, storing, packing, delivering, managing all our own IT websites, databases, right through to actually providing recipes, writing cookery books and even giving cookery lessons. It's, it, And we do also run restaurants as well. So it is really a very, very um, complex business. And that's kind of the way I like it. It's not the way most businesses like it. Um, it, And it is very challenging running such a complex business. And and the only way you can do it successfully is by really engaging with your staff and trusting them and giving them responsibility on the whole to, you know, get on with things. And as as far as possible, getting out of their way, really, which is, I think, a... um, underrated element of management is knowing when to get out of the way
0: definitely well you've done that to the ultimate level since your uh, employee ownership i think isn't it which i will come on to in a minute but but before we do you know people ask me how how i have time to you know run the businesses and run a podcast and i love coming to see people like you who just 10x that kind of like yeah busy busy lives like the fact that you've managed to squeeze me in between a trip to oxford and a dinner party (laughs) in about an hour's time so yeah well done um I want to go back in time a little bit before we come into the details around and the issues around the sort of yeah, food supply chain, I suppose. So, what was the trigger? What got you into organic farming? Because at one point in time, you were also a management consultant, I think, and living in New York. So, yeah, yeah, can you tell well, us a I bit? did.
1: My, my parents were tenant farmers. But, you know, Riverford was a Church of England tenancy. They started farming in 1951, and you know, that's where I grew up. Um, you know, food was everywhere my mum was a fantastic cook and you know most of what she cooked was produced on the farm and in her garden and that sort of um so I grew up with that you know knowing where your food comes from and how it's prepared and sharing it you know with family and with also other people who were, who worked on the farm and it was that's just you know I think I was incredibly lucky to grow up so it's, it's just kind of culturally embedded in me and, and really I mean you could say that Riverford is just a you know, fairly huge extension of, of that. You know, it is a a a marriage, as <laughs> I say, my parents were married in 1951 between an enthusiasm for food, largely driven by where it comes from and making the very best of seasonal and local food, combined with an approach to farming, which is probably fairly innovative and is sort of slightly um, restless and unwilling to just do what everyone else does. Uh, you know, my dad was pretty innovative in his farming, and uh, you know, I guess I and my siblings as well actually have
0: kind of con- continued with that. But in the, in the early days, it was it was I say traditional farming. I'm sure if we go back far enough, all all farming was probably organic at one point in our time, wasn't it? But, but what, there was well, a... well,
1: my dad most definitely not. I mean, he he started farming when uh, you know during. Uh, food rationing. I mean, it started in '51. Food rationing went on to '54. You know, we had almost been starved into submission by Hitler's U-boats, and 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 the importance of producing food, you know, in quantity, being able to feed a nation which hadn't been self-sufficient in food for a long time. That 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 was paramount, really, and and that heralded in the the um, agrochemical driven. Kind of revolution. So you know, my father embraced that as he was at the cutting edge of everything. And in 1950, that meant using lots of ammonium nitrate and um, herbicides, insecticides, and and so on. In fact, you know, Riverford was a kind of demonstration farm for ICI in the 60s. So it is. It, it was through, I suppose, through doing that. And I think probably by the 70s, I was born in 1960. So I was sort of starting to. You know, by the seventies, when I was starting to get involved a bit in the farm, he was getting progressively dissatisfied with that way of farming and was experimenting with, you know, less intensive um, agriculture. He he know he was never organic, but when I decided to convert the first field in nineteen eighty six, when I came back to the farm after a couple of years as a management consultant, as you as you said, um, yeah, he he was
0: very supportive of that. Okay. So if, if, if the objective is to make as much food as possible and mm. yeah, that sort of post-war era, um, the chemical approach to that, what, 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 was, what was it that wasn't working? What was concerning him and then you to the point where you decided to make a change?
1: I think the soil, really. I mean, it was I remember walking across fields where crops had failed. I mean, essentially, our land is not massively um, fertile and, and it's really not suited to... The trend at that time was people growing more and more barley, some wheat, largely barley in our area. There was a switch from spring barley to autumn sown barley and people were just growing it year in year out without any sort of rotation and our soils certainly you know were it was very difficult to do that and to maintain the life and fertility of the soil um Maybe if you threw enough of the right chemicals at it, you could just about manage it. Some people did, but you know, the soil loses its structure. It becomes stripped of, you know, you won't be finding many earthworms, you'll be losing all the mycorrhizal fungi that live around the plant's roots. And, and it becomes very vulnerable to, um, to loss from erosion. It won't hold as much water in the summer because you've lost all the organic matter, which is largely what holds the water in the soil. And And yields started declining, and as soon as you get on that slope of the declining yields, I remember my father saying this, you know there is less organic matter going back into the crop, there are less roots you know the root system is smaller, there's less uh, you know crop residues left, and you are onto a you know a a slippery slope of of declining fertility, and that, I think that's what he was seeing on the farm, and I guess so that led him to going back to a a more well in some ways more traditional rotational where he grew less and less corn and grew more and more grass actually quite contentious now when people talking about the um, climatic impact of methane emissions from um, ruminants sheep and cows largely Uh, but no one was talking about that in those days
0: (laughs) no very very true so if you noticed the impact that we're having because it because it seems that organic is still comparatively niche why didn't the whole industry notice at the same time the detrimental impact it was having on soil oh i don't think they did so that was
1: back in the 60s and 70s when he was starting to think that it was i wouldn't have said that soils have become a serious this health of the soil i'm not even sure now that it is it's talked about i'm not sure how much farmers are really reacting to it but more progressive farmers i would say more thinking farmers are but that's really only happened in the last 5 years mm. you know so there was a long period where you know if you're feeling judgmental you could say farmers were just you know raping the land and taking whatever they could from it and and you know at the cost of declining fertility and health of the soils you know more runoff more flooding pollution of waterways and a declining actual fundamental ability to produce food and feed ourselves as a nation.
0: So, uh, so very succinctly put, why didn't more people, though, you know, you, what, what was unique? You were just particularly interested, because this is 1987, you're right, even mm. now, here we are, what's that, 20-odd uh, 20, 20 years later, and we don't seem to have learned. Was this just uh, something that you felt particularly passionate about? You mean what made me want to farm organic? Yeah, what when made you I want to started? farm organic? Yeah, I'm yeah. as interested in why you, I sort of think I understand why you did. I'm particularly intrigued, I suppose, also why people didn't, so other people didn't. So I suppose both questions really. What's different about you to the rest of the industry? Okay, well, I think farmers are,
1: you know, gross generalizations. There are exceptions to what I'm going to say, but most farmers are inherently pretty damn conservative. They They really don't like to step out of the mould of. You know, being solid NFU members and and carrying on doing what their father did. It's a very, very conservative industry. And, you know, with, you know, there's just within that, there's been a progressive move to something towards farming, which actually many of their fathers would probably be appalled by, you know, abandonment of what were considered to be sound agricultural techniques, you know, mainly in our area. A, a, a balanced rotation and mixture of livestock and, um, and arable farming, which, which has been the basis of you know agriculture for centuries, and increasingly farms became you know in my lifetime have become more and more specialised. So now you know farmers will largely there'll be a specialist dairy farm, or there'd be a specialist in producing combinable crops, or there'll be specialist sheep and beef or there'll be a specialist pig producer, you know, almost invariably very intensive specialist poultry. There's very, very little mixed farming, which I think is, well, like actually, I can remember one of my father's uh, neighbors describing as mixed farming as, you know, mixed farming and muddled thinking and said, you know, there's no doubt that if you are a specialist, you are going to be better and better at doing that. Uh, And, but the sort of complexity that comes from a mixed farm, I think, is just inherently more stable. It's more difficult to manage. It requires more skill, um, but it's inherently more stable. I mean, if you look and you know, if you take your lessons from nature, you know, the 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 most stable environments in the world are the ones where there are there is greatest diversity in terms of the plant and, to a lesser extent, animal species in there. So you know, look at a. a native forest, it will all be, always be a mixture of many, many different species with several canopies um, within it. And, and I think we could learn a lot from that. And, I, you know, I suppose I do, to some extent, draw my inspiration from that. It's, it's very difficult to take so much complexity and run a business where we you know as farmers we're expected to produce food people say that we spend 10 percent of gdp in this country on food ish but the reality is actually that farmers that doesn't go to farmers The the share of gdp that goes to farmers is about 0.7 of a percent assuming that we all earned the same amount of money that would imply that each farmer had to feed about 140 people and if you if one was going to do that in a clearly, you know, things have to be mechanised. It's very difficult to mechanise a system which, with so much diversity in it. And I think that's why we see so little of it. I mean, around here, the, the you know, if I look out of the window of my house here, <laughs> this was a, a Church of England tenancy, uh, just like the uh, farm that I grew up in. It would have been surrounded by cider orchards. Uh, and it was always said that cider paid the rent until people switched from cider to beer. And then it uh, it all sort of collapsed a bit, but and the system was that the, the the sheep would graze under the apple trees and and um you didn't have to mow the grass, obviously you know, and then in the autumn you took the sheep out and you collected the apples and then put them back in in November or so on after you'd collected the apples you know that is a form of what people today would describe as permaculture and uh, but it was absolutely traditional agriculture, no one does it anymore it's it's really the you know, you can drive up the M5 back up towards Bristol and you'll see cider orchards, and they are purely cider orchards. It's, if they don't mow in between the rows, they'll more commonly actually spray off underneath it. There are no sheep there, because the guy who, looks, who makes the cider doesn't know anything about sheep. <laughs> and the guy who keeps the sheep doesn't know anything about cider. And, and so we no longer have that sort of mixed, highly, um, highly skill-intensive agriculture instead we have these ever larger ever more specialized holdings you know i'm
0: afraid i am going to say doing ever more damage to the soil mm. so as i go on these adventures and, and and learn about you know this kind of stuff and i've, I've you know omnivore's dilemma have you read that no, okay. So um, I haven't. You have a bit, You've no, heard of it, of you? No, okay, so yeah. so it's probably started off my kind of understanding mm. a little bit, I guess, around monocultures and 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 the, yeah, the fact that we used to use perennials and the, and, the, and the impact we're having, and we'll go into a little bit more detail mm. on that. But what I don't understand, I suppose, is that I, I get the fact that we needed to try and produce food um, cheaper. I get the fact mm. that we thought that having, uh, yeah, you know, being a specialist in one mm. thing was a better solution. But I guess I, I'm surprised by the fact that we haven't learned that it is. There, there seems to be predominantly negative impacts. Yes, we can grow a lot of food, but we're now learning that the environmental implications are so poor. So the bit that I, I suppose I would like to uh, to be more of an optimist on, I guess, is the fact that we have realized it and there is a solution. Because if we've lost all of that knowledge mm. and ability, you know, what's your thoughts? Is this a, a, a we is this a resolvable issue or are we beyond the point of no uh, return?
1: Or? It is a resolvable issue. I mean, you know, not easily, but I mean, it is. I, I think there's a tremendous amount to be gained by farmers cooperating with each other. So, you know, i am been a specialist vegetable grower. In my youth, I kept pigs and sheep and so on. But really what I know about is vegetables. My brother is a specialist um, dairy producer you know we can work together so we can have a sound rotation that, as we do where the grass will be in a mixture you know red clover grass lays for one two three four years and then we might grow vegetables i look after the vegetables so i'll take that field sometimes i rent him a field and he'll have the grass and he rents me a field and i grow the vegetables for a, a couple of years and thereby we have a rotation but we also have the we're able to specialise in our particular enterprises, but also have the benefit of a more mixed um, farming system. And I think one could go further than that. I think we could um, include, well, we are planting orchards, mainly my brother Oliver planting orchard on on the farm and I'm intercropping it with artichokes. And as the trees get bigger, the artichokes will go and it will go back down to grass. I would like to start planting nuts on the farm. And it's probably sensible that I don't do all that myself. You know, I think it's better that, you know, if you can give an opportunity for someone else to grow the nuts and, uh, you know, who really is a specialist in that and who's gone around and researched, you know, how to do it and how to mechanise it and reduce labour input. I think that that's a good way to go. So on the farm that Geetie and I bought here, we do have we have got a guy who's producing seed, albeit on quite a small scale. We're starting to work with another woman who's a specialist in um, perennial Uh, vegetables we rent out the grass to our neighbor um, who's a um, a beef producer and we do grow some vegetables as part of that sort of rotation but they're all we're we're all sort of working together in a way which in cooperating which I think enables us to have a more balanced and sustainable uh, farming system without you know that mixed farming and muddled thinking which you know you can't be good at everything and uh, you know with the commercial pressure that farming's under you know, you well probably the same in any business. You know, whatever you do, I'm sure you've found the same in you know catering. Um, you have gotta be good at what you do. Yeah. No. And you can't expect your customers to subsidise you for your incompetence.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and that and that often is a challenge. Is that we have so much good intention that we want to make the system better. The first thing has to be the knowledge. And so first of all, we've got to know there's a problem. And then once mm. we know there's a problem. Yeah. We need to try and understand what yeah. the solution is, but then we need to be able to finance the solution yeah. because obviously, if it's a much more expensive way of of, of you know solving a problem, same with me in the restaurants about you know yeah. the, the provenance of the food and what I want yeah. to sell.
1: I haven't actually done the sums, but if you say that farmers are getting point seven percent of GDP, you know, if they got point eight or 09 percent, I mean, no one would even notice the difference, you know, and we really could have a really you know we could see wildlife returning to the countryside we could have a much more you know complex and sustainable farming system and probably have better quality food as well but it does require a kind of investment in knowledge it requires trust it requires long term relationships all those things which really are the antithesis of modern You know capitalism, which is all about responsiveness to ever-changing customer demands and so on. I would say customer whims, and and uh, I think we need to challenge that um, that paradigm. Actually, Mm. that you can, you know, you can have whatever you want, eat whatever you want, whatever time of the year, and it can be delivered to you in a twenty-minute time slot. You know, tomorrow, possibly even today. I mean, that's the way you know the food, my business, the home delivery of food, really, which is what Riverford does. That's the way it's going, and and um, I find it appalling, actually. I mean, I, I really, you know, I have to say, the sort of pandering to ever-changing whims of of customers, the the uh, wanting ever greater convenience, you know, ever more consistency, ever better cosmetic quality, and an ever lower price, is, is just destroying it It's not just the environment actually it's destroying our our culture it's destroying the social fabric of the countryside uh, you know it it is you know i kind of feel if you externalized all the costs associated with our food the way it's being produced now, you know it really wouldn't be cheap at all um, you know it it's insane actually i mean I'm surrounded by dairy farmers, you know that my father. Started off milking 20 cows. Uh, by the time he retired and my brother took over, he had two, two herds of 100 cows. He'd grown a lot. But, but there were still quite a bit within the parish. There were you know, probably 10 farmers milking less than 100 cows. Now there are two farmers, and uh, they've all, both got over 1,000 cows. And it's just getting bigger and bigger. The cows don't go out at all. They eat – sorry, that's not fair. They do go out and during the dry part of their rotation. Uh, but mostly they're indoors. They're fed maize silage an annual crop which doesn't really like growing in our countryside i mean we're sitting here looking at a day where it's been raining a lot not much of the maize silage has been cut it's a disaster for the environment but you know cows do i have to say they do you know produce a hell of a lot of milk on it uh but the cost i mean the environment agency just was pulling its hair out it looks like we're gonna have another wet autumn uh the ha- maize will be harvested late Uh, In wet conditions, the soil will be compacted. There'll be no possibility of sowing everything. After it, the land will be bare through the winter. There'll be, you know, runoff, pollution of the rivers, uh, you know, loss of soil. Uh, You know, maize is, and it's to feed an animal which should be eating grass. It should be eating a perennial crop, which is, uh, you know, down permanently, you know, managed correctly would be sequestering carbon, uh and and you know contributing you know possibly contributing to averting some of the uh, climate change instead we're growing maize and you know and why we're doing it we're doing it because the costs of growing that crop yes you can produce milk slightly cheaper but if the if the under our economic system but if the costs of growing producing milk in that way were internalized no one would be growing maize
0: what do you mean by that
1: so, OK, so if there was a system by which I think the current carbon trading price is uh, is maybe £30 a tonne, I, I, I'm not entirely competent of these figures, but I'm guessing that you're growing maize, you're probably losing one to two tonnes of carbon out of the soil a year. A permanent pasture would probably be sequestering one to two tons. The difference is four tons uh, of carbon a year to, times thirty pounds, which is a ludicrously low price. The carbon trading price should be one hundred pounds a ton uh, but it, it is uh, that um, that would be one hundred and fifty pounds an acre if you, if, you had to, if there was a, if you had to pay one hundred and fifty pounds an acre to grow maize,
0: no one would grow it what's what 's a carbon trading price though
1: there is this idea when everyone talks about them being Carbon zero as a business, or carbon zero even as a nation. Yeah, you know we're not going to be. The idea is that you are going to offset right. your carbon by paying someone else to do something which will reduce carbon, and that could be growing forests. So you can you can fly to New York and pay someone to plant a couple of trees or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm incredibly sceptical of this, yeah. <laughs> so the, but so. there is you know there is an, an argument for it. You know and. Of course, you know the cost of letting all that carbon dioxide go into the air ultimately it may not be us, it may be our children, maybe our childrens children 's children we'll be paying the price for that, and thirty pounds a ton will seem bloody cheap you know when london 's underwater yeah. uh, and uh, so I mean the problem what 's driving agriculture and probably driving loads of industries, most industries probably is an economic system which doesn 't account for the true costs of what they 're doing the 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 costs are externalised and borne by other people. So, you know, we spray lots of... Well, let's say we put lots of ammonium nitrate on the land, the, you know, the nitrates end up in the water. Uh, the water company downstream has to pay money to take the nitrates out of the water. It's extremely expensive, actually. Some water authorities are actually paying uh, farmers not to use um, uh, ammonium nitrate. That's the basis, really, of the nitrate-sensitive zones thing. I mean, that's a very, you know, you can see that one. That's a very direct one. You know, someone else feels the benefit of putting the ammonium nitrate on and growing more grass and producing cheap milk more cheaply. Someone else has to pay for clearing it up. Well, I mean, that's the problem. You know, that's a microcosm of, you know, so many of our problems, really. The, you know, I think most people would, in theory, agree with the idea that the polluter pays. I mean, how do you get them to pay? I mean, the problem is that the polluter, you know, very rarely has to pay uh, and if they did had to pay for the long term impact of their pollution you know a lot of the things that go on today wouldn't and we'd live in a better world but I mean the capitalism is incredibly clumsy I mean it just can't account for these things and um, and actually I don't think it has a hope of right. <laughs> accounting for it I you know possibly carbon trading might help some of our problems but I still think you know capitalism is a Is an incredibly um, blunt
0: instrument. What what, what I uh, am very relieved by is the fact that with all of these kind of mounting problems that just sound... And and exactly the reason that I do this podcast is because I like to think that people make decisions all too often subconsciously rather than consciously. I think if you articulate these things to a lot of consumers... They, they don't want to screw up the planet. they don't want to have this system. A lot of the time they don't get it. Yes, they they quite quickly will forget it and bury it uh, all too often even and, and you know even after they've been taught it, they'll rapidly try and unlearn it. But I think most people are fundamentally decent. And so I, I, I agree with that. I think
1: most people are better, more generous, more considerate, more willing to cooperate and more altruistic than our governments and institutions give them credit yes. for. We just haven't found a way of sort of harnessing No,
0: that. And, and I hope that now, whereas information used to come top-down, so we used to be told by the what the, mm. the government what to eat and you know how much protein we should have and where our food should come from, I hope that now we've got this peer-to-peer kind of instantaneous communication. There's obviously a lot of downsides to social media, but actually the ability to share information, mm. finding mm. out whether it's fake or whether it's true... Mm is a challenge. But seasonality, I mean, you touched on that just now, I guess the fact that we, uh, you know, we now expect to be able to eat whatever food, whenever we want, they expect to be able to order it and have it delivered in a 20 minute time slot. You know, I love the fact that your boxes just just having them, what you're growing, you know, what's, what's right to be delivered at that time. So I guess I've got two questions. One is, did you, you know, was the original motivation, um, to, to, to deliver boxes and to deliver it that way mm. as, a, as a solution to sort of almost bypass most of this system that doesn't work? And then secondly, have you seen more people caring about that and being happy just to take what's seasonal? Because it, you inferred from the kind of, uh, yeah, the demand of a, of a delivery slot mm. in 20 minutes that actually potentially the situation's getting worse rather than better. Um, well, I think both things are going
1: on in, in um, tandem. Uh, things are getting better and things are getting worse <laughs> in other ways. I so, think you're right. um, your first question was about: uh, Did I set out to do the veg box? Yeah, it was was stage? the veg box a yeah.
0: solution to you? You yeah. saw the problem, yeah. you saw the issue. Was the veg I box? I think I
1: am have a very entrepreneurial nature, and I'm also pretty damn contrarian. You know, when I see everybody else doing <laughs> one thing, I'm afraid to say there is. It's a little bit childish and things, not something I'm very proud of, but I kind of tend to want to go in the other direction. Um, But I think that has led me to look at the world in a different way. And often when everyone else is doing something which really is kind of stupid, that gives you an opportunity to do it in a different way. And I suppose I was never convinced that people really did want all that choice that you saw when you were, you know, as I was growing up, you know, obviously supermarkets have taken over. Essentially, retail uh, in particular—you know—certainly in fresh produce is now over eighty percent. When I started, it was about sixty percent, and you know, when my parents were around, it was probably about six percent of retail of produce would go through. Through supermarkets, and and the the premise that they work on is that everyone wants ever greater choice. You know, there were ten thousand skews, individual lines in a supermarket, then twenty thousand, then thirty thousand. I believe even seventy thousand is is not unusual. Now, I mean, who the hell wants all that choice? I mean, it it just makes me. It's I just find it incredibly stressful when I go to a restaurant with a long menu. I just I just don't want it. I just want to why what's good what's best now. And, and um, anyway, so I suppose that did lead to the, the veg box scheme. i, I always questioned whether people really did want that choice. Uh, so it wasn't my idea. I was copying some friends who had started a box scheme up the road. And, um, and indeed, when I did walk up the garden path, I did all the deliveries myself for the first two or three years, you know, with what was a very crude offering. And, and you know, the knock on the door someone would open it. And they really did care you know what the vegetables taste like that they were grown locally that they knew the person that they grew there they knew the kind of story that they felt a connection to them that it was part of their sort of culture that they they cared what they tasted like more than what they looked like um, price was important but it wasn't everything and they didn't want any of that packaging most of which served no function anyway so um and I just knew the first day that I, well, the first week we delivered 30 veg boxes and I knew from there that I was on to a winner, really. I mean, it was to get that sort of reception and the contrast between that and speaking to a supermarket buyer, um, you know, was marked. And uh, in the early days, actually, I did try and supply directly to um, a supermarket and uh, the, um, anyway, they wanted me to come up. I was setting up, a tiny little pack house that met all their you know hygiene regulations and everything and and they i'd agreed a program to grow as i remember it was little gem lettuce icebergs white cabbage and potatoes i think and uh the buyer said yeah we'd like you to come up and meet our technical you know manager and i said okay yeah that's fine and uh he said yeah no it'll be um yeah thursday next week and i said there's no chance we could make it friday is there because um I've got to be in London for the weekend. And the phone went dead on me. And I called back and I said, I'm terribly sorry. I think we, uh, I think we must have been cut off. And the guy did say to me, he said, No, Sonny, when we whistle, you jump. The only question is how high? Really? Really? <laughs> Yeah, you just, i just thought you know what no one's gonna to talk to why? me like that no, no and the funniest thing and i did that was it i actually i i started building this pack house and i would go out with a sledgehammer and i just took out my aggression <laughs> and that was the end of the uh of this end of the um of supplying that particular supermarket um direct uh, and the interesting thing was that i did actually meet that bloke and he was an absolute teddy bear. He was a really nice mm-hmm. bloke. I mean, so what was making him behave like that? And I think all our behavior is is really, to a large extent, to a shocking extent, actually shaped by the behavior and the expectations and the norms of those around us. If you sit in a room in a buying office of a supermarket and everyone else is just being vile, you know, treating human beings in a way that no human being should treat another human being. If everyone else is doing it, it becomes normal. And if your boss is rewarding you and your next promotion is solely dependent on your ability to generate margin per foot of shelf space on a supermarket, that becomes a norm and that's how people behave. And, and uh, I just find it absolutely shocking. And, you know, I think we have pioneered a supply chain, a relationship with the growers that we work with, with the farmers, you know, many of whom are personal friends which is very different to that and um actually ultimately not only do i think is it more humane and fulfilling and less stressful uh i actually think it's economically more efficient because you know we agree a program with them that we're going to buy so many tons of broccoli in you know week 34 and we buy so many tons of broccoli and we pay them what we agreed to pay they don't need to worry about it always you know and um and that means that they can just get on with growing broccoli and becoming bloody good at growing broccoli. They don't need to be, you know, worrying about, you know, how a supermarket buyer is going to behave. It's extremely expensive dealing with supermarkets. You know, it's very, very wasteful. And that's why, you know, they, we often can be substantially cheaper when we normally are cheaper because, yeah, we don't have all that bullshit and um, and we have less waste as a result. When you walk through one of our fields, it is pretty much stumps at the end. There is The wastage is... Is is absolutely minimal,
0: and and this wastage issue is because the supermarkets, yeah, you know, are very precise in what they demand, and you almost have to have to overgrow to supply. Yeah, they will.
1: Um, you know, they will tell you. you know, you'll have a discussion. You'll probably will agree a price. No guarantee that they're going to stick to the price. You'll have to stick to the price. <laughs> There's no way you're going to get more than that price. But they are—they're um, quite likely to change it. Say they want to put your product on promotion, or just decide that it's—they don't want to pay it anyway. But they, that's bad enough. But the, probably the worst thing is the volume thing. I mean, if they don't—you know—if for whatever reason people, I don't know, it's a cloudy June and you've got loads of lettuce and people eat less let—you know—salads when it's cloudy. Then you'll—you'll—you will waste. We used to have to plant two lettuces for each one that we sold to a supermarket, you know, because you have to make sure that you have availability. If you don't have availability of what they want to buy, even if it's more than they, what they agreed to buy, if you don't have the availability that week, they will have a complete and utter tantrum and you will lose the contract. You may even have to, if you're a large packer, you may even have to air freight it in from California, you know, in order to meet their demand. That happens on a regular basis and um you know if people don't have lettuce it's not the end of the world no one's going to die you know or if they have to if you have to buy a you know a butterhead lettuce into, instead of a little gem you know, it's really not the end of the world, and you know, we regularly we might plan to put cauliflowers in our boxes that week, but if for some reason you know there's been a frost and there's broccoli available, and we put or we put two small cauliflowers in. That's the other thing. If they don't meet the predetermined specification for cauliflowers, it was 11 centimeters across. If they only get to ten and a half, forget it. <laughs> you can just might you know mow the whole lot off. You know, whereas we we're, we're just put two cauliflowers in you know it it it, it 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 there is so much ludicrous waste in the food system and it's generally around meeting people's perceived meeting consumers i hate that word but anyway let's use it for now consumers uh you know perceived desires sometimes called needs but really i would say whims and, and and you know, a lot of times people don't even know what they want, you know. And, and yeah, so they would perfectly happily eat a cauliflower instead of a broccoli if that's, you know, what's available that week. So it's tremendously wasteful. But we have built a whole culture around the idea that if you've got money in your pocket, you're king. If you've got the money, you can have what the hell you like, and everyone else, you know, will be bent out of shape to give you what you want as so long as you've got the money in the pocket. And it, it's just, I just think it's it's weird and it's destroying yeah. our
0: culture and our planet. Weird is the word, isn't it? And this mm. is why I think it's so important to have a conversation because you're right, most people wouldn't care what lettuce they have or if there's no mm. lettuce, you know, having something else when they walk into mm. a shop. So it mm. isn't coming from the consumer. The consumer, just, you know, doesn't realise. If, if, if I'm sure if you ask the consumer and say, look, we're out of this salad, we can fly one from California for you, would you like it? They go, no, it's cool, I'll just have that we don't even ask them. We just do it. it, 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 it this it just yeah, it makes well, your head a bit, up, a bit.
1: It's all based on the idea that you that's an informed consumer who knows exactly what they want will drive will shape the economy that we. And and the key word there, I think, is informed. I mean, a lot of people just don't know what they want, and if they had the information, you know, the norm around the environmental impact of their choices, I think they would very often. Uh, make different choices I, I the I mean I've been I suppose about 20 years I, I did probably I don't know you probably won't remember there was a time when Tesco said they were going to carbon label every item in their store I think they got to about a packet of crisps and a bottle of shampoo or something and gave up I don't know whether they actually really had any intention to and slightly to my shame <laughs> I mean we decided we were going to carbon label our boxes for a bit i I think I have grown up a bit since then, really. But the idea that someone was, we were going to carbon label our box and one box would have a lower carbon footprint than another one, and therefore people would buy the lowest carbon footprint box, and that would drive us to change the way we ran a business and we would, you know, grow lower carbon. I mean, it's just absolute tosh. We actually did it for about six months, and I didn't, you know, out of my 30,000 customers or something, I never met a single person who's purchasing decision had been influenced by that work it is a completely ridiculous paradigm but it's still the one that is used the idea that individual consumers will shape the world that we can live in and the reason it's used because it enables businesses to carry on as normal it enables them to fight off regulation i mean it's used we don't need to regulate the telecom industry because we can all change our phone account we don't need to regulate banking because you can go to a different bank we don't need to regulate farming because you can you know, you don't have to buy battery f- eggs. You can now buy free-range eggs. So that's about the only example that I can think of where actually consumer power has led to a change. It has led to us getting rid of battery cages, and damn good thing too. But there are very, very few examples I would say where it has been effective. It's it's a kind of smokescreen behind which businesses can carry on as normal, and behind which governments can abdicate the responsibilities they have to you know, act
0: in the interests of their citizens. So you're saying that when people don't make the decision, so if, if you carbon-labeled a box, it had no impact on the decision people make, and therefore Absolutely the solution no. is actually to change you as the middleman mm. or as the supplier needs to make the decision for the consumer and actually exactly. supply what's right. Yeah,
1: it was a very interesting exercise. a yeah, whole. I'm Going back to, I think it was 2005 and six. we did this, And, you know, we did measure everything that we did and it really did expose what were the most environmentally damaging things about the business. And some of them we could change relatively easily, actually. But it was up to us to do that. It was our responsibility to do that. And it was the responsibility of government to regulate us, to encourage us or even make us, even encourage us through a taxation system or make us through legislation do those things is not realistically up to the consumer let's call them food citizens i think it's a more positive term um it's not up to the food citizen to 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 you know shape the agriculture we have in this country through that level of knowledge because how are they ever going to know that i mean you know you know i had someone working for i don't know a couple of years on that project and even so it was you know some of our measurements were pretty crude and um you know so how on earth is a, is a food citizen an individual going to be able to make those informed decisions i mean it is so utterly ridiculous you know it is it's, it's astonishing that ever, anybody ever gave it any credence at all I mean, we still get it, though. I mean, you know, that everyone will say, and my wife, this is something we argue about quite <laughs> a lot, you know, will say, you know, you vote three times a day, you know, with what you choose to eat. Yep. And there is truth in that, and there are some positive things. I mean, the the, the move towards eating less meat, absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, and I, it is... But as the main thing that is going to shape a better world that is going to avert climate a climate catastrophe is... It's just hopeless. It's not going to happen. You know, we really do need businesses to be properly regulated, uh, and we need governments to show a bit more courage to act in, for the long term interests of of their of their citizens, and not just the ones today. You know, the ones a generation and two generations down the line. You know, that's that's what we need to do, and we need them to stand up to you know the lobbying that comes from commercial companies. You know. Um, you know who are very very persuasive in allowing things to carry on as normal whether it's food additives whether it's diesel cars in cities you know all stuff that really should be much much more regulated uh you know there is a whole lobby out there um you know very active in westminster and i'm told even more active you know in brussels mm, interesting
0: it's um I guess, yeah, the, one of the things I always say about this podcast and one of the reasons I'm trying to educate people around these issues is I do fundamentally believe that where we spend our money has an impact on the kind of world we're going to live on. In. Uh, it's interesting that, yeah, you're right. The the level of, inf- uh, of how people are informed is interesting. I have this debate a lot with my mm. chefs. I feel, as a restaurateur, that in our industry, you know, we should know more about our food supply chain and more about where our food comes from and more about the impact of food than mm. the consumer. It's because, not easy, though, the, is it? the, It's not easy. <laughs> and that's it. even, you know, the reasons I love coming out and having these conversations, and I've only been doing this for the last six months, and, and you're putting a significant amount of time aside and actually going and speaking directly to the producers mm. is still blowing my mind. And then I was I was with um, Andrew Stephen from the Sustainable Restaurant Association a couple of weeks ago, and we were chatting about, uh, you know, people, even people who, who think they're making the right decision. So they'll go, you know, they'll buy local with their meat, for example. But you've also got to look at what's that, what's that animal being fed? And is it being fed soy? And it was in the news a couple of days ago about animals being fed soy from the Amazon forest. And even though you think you're buying a local animal... So it's incredibly complicated and nuanced, isn't it, to be informed. So I, I do feel that we have a moral responsibility, at least. We don't have a legal responsibility mm. at the moment, but I think we have a moral responsibility to try and educate our customers around what to buy. It's interesting when you say about um, yeah, the, you know the carbon and giving people the information, because I've often said, look, we should have organic free-range chicken on one side of the menu... And I would never sell, you know, the utter shit, but even the red tractor kind of RSPs is mm. chicken, which I still don't think is an acceptable compromise, almost give people the choice and see where they spend their money. But it's interesting that you say it doesn't make any difference. Actually, we just need to take the moral responsibility. The trouble is, and this is probably why it needs to come from government, I suppose, is that if only a few people do that... You're kind of, you know, you're you're in a market where you you're more expensive than your competitor, and yeah. uh, and money talks, and it's hard to get the customer to have the level of knowledge where they'll spend the extra. I guess. I'm sure that's
1: true, and and I think one of the biggest problems, and actually I think food service is it's worse than food retail, is that I mean there are so many people. Lying, or if you're going to be charitable, being economic with the truth, or you know, misleading in their claims on their menu. I mean, how many times do you see local, organic, and
0: seasonal? Yeah. Well, nobody, unfortunately, you know, says what the definition of artisan or even local is. You know, these things are just words. I, I and then the big players the see it, artisan. and the, yeah, and they and they <laughs> jump on the bandwagon, and then everybody uses it. I, you know, boutique yeah. hotel. I've got a little hotel, and it was called boutique for a while because there wasn't another genre, and then there was a yeah. hundred and fifty bedroom boutique hotel that opened, and I was like. What does that mean? It does, yeah, yeah people just jump on board yeah. the bullshit, yeah. I suppose. So yeah. it's uh, it's incredibly frustrating. But the trouble well, is... And
1: there is. I mean, there are lots of people out there. You know, if you say something's organic and it's not, I mean, you are breaking the law, uh, yeah. you know, but there will, no one will do anything about it. I mean, it is um, the trading standards. I mean, I, I, I am a bit of a bore on this. I will when I go into a shop and they'll say, oh, it's all organic. And I'll say, oh, which, what is... And and I will persist, and they won't know, and in the end, I'll get the manager, and in the end, it'll turn out the only thing is the canned sweet corn or something. And, and very often, they kind of make me feel like I'm being pedantic about this. <laughs> And it it just drives me absolutely mad. You know, actually, no, you are lying. You're lying to your customers. You're being deceitful. And actually, it's illegal. But you carry on doing it and no one will do anything about it. And, and, And you're made to feel somehow ridiculous by, you know, when you ask the waiter, you know, what does that actually mean? You know, mm-hmm. what is local? You know, what is organic? Yep. And they won't know. And you'll spend a lot of time, by which time all the people you're having dinner with will <laughs> be bored of you for getting a bit annoyed and embarrassed and you ruin the evening yep. by actually, or by just asking someone to tell you the truth. Yeah. And we and we should do that more. Um, well, I, do, I would ask if, if you really... You know, if you would care, do, you know, the key is to ask those difficult questions and not be fobbed off with easy answers. Ask for something specific. Mm. You know, when they say it's local, you know, say, what is local? And, you know, I say, what farm does it come from? And really drill down into the detail. And then it tends to all start falling apart quite quickly. And, I, and if enough people ask, um, things will change. you know, But you, yeah, you do need to be fairly persistent. You do need to be prepared to
0: be a pain in the arse, actually. Yeah, and have no can friends. Be, can be a bit boring for <laughs> your go friends. Up, yeah, go, <laughs> out, go, out, go out for dinner on your own a lot, or even yeah. just in my house. It is difficult for the restaurant to, you know, we tried to specify the farm for quite a long time. And, and it is, unfortunately, back to what you were saying, is giving the consumer what they want to buy rather than what we should provide, because it comes down to the whole animal kind of thing. So if you're mm. going to one farm and you only want to sell, you know, ribeye and sirloins or fillets... And that's what you're buying. You know, where's the rest of the animal going? And yes, yeah. some of it should be turned yeah. into buildings. It but... is
1: very difficult to do, and you know, there probably are things you know that we do that I would you know be in danger of being called a hypocrite. But you, yeah, I think it's important to be as specific as possible. Yes. So if you're going to say you know as much of it as possible, don't say as much of it as possible as organic. organic. Yeah. Say whatever percentage it is, yeah. and over a year measure it and just put the percentage down. Do you know, say something specific. Don't make you know, woolly claims and hope that people are just going to extrapolate from that and believe that you're a saint. You know, well, of course, unfortunately, most people just want to hear the answer that they want to hear, and that's what they believe. And and, and that the catering trade has been pretty dishonest in exploiting that, and, it, and I'm afraid it does upset me quite a lot.
0: Yeah, well, no, it upsets me a lot as well, and, and we're just trying to work out how are we going to, you know, resolve this. We're on this constant quest to improve provenance. We've just got some production space because actually... You know, you need to close the gap. You know, you need to get closer to the farmer as ideally. Ideally, mm. I want to know the people that we mm. buy from. And when you're buying through a butcher, and particularly if you're trying to do food at scale, it can be incredibly difficult for that butcher to keep constant correspondence as to exactly what farm he's been to. Mm. But using the whole animal, uh, you know, kind of carcass and, mm. and 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 getting closer makes absolutely a lot of sense. But you've got you've then got to have some production space. So we've mm. just acquired some space with a huge walk-in fridge, walk-in freezer, yeah, some big production do. space, and then we can go to the yeah. farm. So exactly the same with chickens. Where I've been. You know, the, the, the team would probably say, look, we need to tell people that we use, you know, better chickens than 80% of the rest of the restaurants. And I'm going, no, it's still a shitty product. I'm still not happy to go out and say, this is great. I can go out and say it's not as bad as other people, but that's not comfortable. <laughs> whereas now we're, we're almost at the point where we can go directly to the chicken farmer and say, look, where is it the minute we get fillets delivered mm. every day? Now we'll say, look, deliver us 200 mm. birds a week, whole birds, deliver them to this location. Mm. We'll butcher them, we'll separate them, we'll send them to well, our sometimes restaurant. Sometimes it is <laughs> about just...
1: You know, being prepared to say sometimes, you know, that can't be on your menu. I don't know how your restaurant works, Mark, but, you know, the ones that I have supplied over the years, actually, the number of people who are really prepared to sort of compromise I mean, if you're going to buy the way that everyone says they're going to buy and it, it's local and it's seasonal, you know, you're, it's not going to be reliable. You can't have, you know, the reliability comes from, you know, if you haven't got basil, you can buy it, you know, it can be flown in from somewhere else. You haven't got strawberries, someone yeah. will put them on a plane. that's how you can have strawberries on your menu in a constant way. I, I, I think it's almost impossible to have a sustainable supply chain in food service and to have constant menu you know some cases i've spoken to chains of restaurants not cheap restaurants i mean not the very top end but you know pretty good restaurants and who who print their menus or have planned their menus 18 months ahead you know it's just at which point i just walk out the door and say there's no way we can supply you yeah as a matter of fact we do supply a, a chain of uh uh I'm not going to say which one. <laughs> anyway, but and they do it. We have it. We've been at it for years. I mean, they right. do really want to do a better job of it, yeah. and it has taken us a long time to find out a few products that we can supply to them Consistent. reliably. But they do have, um, you know, they do plan their menus a long time ahead. And I was working in their development kitchen with their... Um, executive chef and we were cooking a few things up and after a while i said oh we could do this we could do that and in the end he said to me he said guy what you got to understand is that our chefs can't cook really i mean wow. that's pretty appalling this was not a bomb at the road yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was a, okay, well,
0: i'm glad you didn't the, mention <laughs> the name because uh, <laughs> miranda would have had a heart attack <laughs> yeah.
1: no i'm not I, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah no so and i'm from you know my observation of the the catering industry having run restaurants myself and uh is that um You know, chefs can be difficult. Most people do not want to be dependent on an emotional, sometimes highly egotistical chef. And the way to avoid being dependent on that chef is to de-skill your kitchen. So if they walk out, someone else can step in very quickly. And obviously you can save money by that because you're going to pay them less as well. The only way you can de-skill your kitchen is to reduce it to a, you know, by numbers operation. things up. The only way you can do that is to have a reliable supply chain. That is inconsistent with... Um, buying from local producers who are going to be less reliable than a wholesale market or Brakes Brothers or 663 or whatever they're called, you know, all the um, Sedexo yep. and all the rest of them. And that sounds fairly depressing, but I can tell you know after now I suppose it's about 15 years since we opened the field kitchen down on the farm. I can actually honestly say it doesn't have to be like that because there are lots of chefs. There are more and more chefs who just do not want to work within that system, and they're looking for something different. And we actually find it well, we seem to find it really quite easy to recruit chefs who are skilled enough to be able to manage an ever-changing menu and to be able to control their costs and. And we have a fantastically successful restaurant, which is really pretty profitable. I'd say it wasn't for many years. <laughs> I lost a lot of money, you know. But um, but it is it is possible, and there are lots of people who want to work like that. And it's about it's about having faith in your fellow human beings. In the end, I think, because there are lots of chefs who want to do things differently and and who really care about what they want to do, but they need to be given the autonomy and the space to be able to do things in their own way and not have an accountant sitting on them from one service to the next asking what their margin is. I mean, clearly they need to be accountable for their margin at the end of the month, um, but... But you've got to give them a bit of, got have a bit of space. Anyway, I'm teaching my grandmother to no, suck yeah, eggs No, yeah, no, no. I agree. Is yeah, your this industry. isn't about. Yeah, exactly. It's not about <laughs> my
0: restaurant. It is about the industry. You know, we we change our menu with the seasons. We follow it three times a year. I change it three, if not four mm. times a year. Um, it, it is really difficult. The margins are super tight. Will the consumer pay? But the, the, there are things you can do. You know, fish is a, is an obvious one for me. You know, people get upset if there's if there's no fish. But you know, we only buy from the from the day boats. You know, I refuse to buy fish on a global well, level. Well, absolutely good on
1: you because I mean, fish is the absolute classic. of anyone's, you know, the number of people who say that we only buy from the day boats in lieu and whatever, and you think, oh, really? And you know, and you manage to have a bass on on yeah, your, on your exactly. menu every day. Every what, day. Yeah. What happens when there's an easterly wind and those fishermen can't go out for exactly. a week or whatever? You yeah. know, how are you getting a fish there? Oh, yeah. oh yeah, no, we do sometimes get it from a wholesaler, and that does come from a beam trawler in Newlyn, yeah.
0: and it's ten days old before it's
1: landed, and it's bloody raping the ocean yeah. every time they
0: go out. Oh, exactly, and yeah. that's the frustration is getting the consumer to understand. I've got no problem running out of fish on a Monday and Tuesday because it's been stormy over the weekend and there's no boats gone out, and therefore we haven't got any. Fish and Great. then, well, you know, the, you. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that should be the way it is, in the yeah. same that it should be a case of this is the vegetables that are available this week. So the idea yeah. of following seasonality of vegetables, which is why yeah we you know, at the moment we don't have an organic supply route and certainly not an affordable one into you know my restaurants, but we're you know we're looking at every single bit on the menu and seeing how we can improve it mm. and that's probably a separate conversation because you you may be able to assist with that but I certainly think if if the sides are fundamentally seasonal you know seasonal greens, seasonal veg whatever and, and ours predominantly are you know there is a challenge around. I appreciate whether, you know, whether pumpkins are two weeks late or, or, or squashes are late or the mm. course sweet corn was later this year, I think, wasn't it? Because it was colder in spring and then, the, you know, yeah, so you yeah, got man, them late was, yeah. and, and we can't, yeah, you know, chef would love to put, you know, I don't know, steak with corn on the cob on the menu. So it's, so it's, so it's nuanced and I absolutely get the challenges and we're far from perfect, but unfortunately, yeah, we are in a sector that's completely, completely greenwashed. I'm sort of conscious of time, but I've got a couple of things I want to touch on because in the restaurant industry, our market rates for vegetables fluctuate all of the time, depending on weather and what's happening. I'm sure what you're saying about the market being flooded. How do you manage to agree a price with farmers a year in advance that's not impacted by weather, for example? Well,
1: I mean, it is difficult and it's happened. It's taken us, you know, many years, three and a bit decades to get there. But, and, and, you know, trust is absolutely critical in that because you know in the early days you know we would agree a price for a cauliflower in january and you got a cold spell in january and suddenly we wouldn't have any cauliflowers because the price would have skyrocketed and then just go and sell them somewhere else yeah now they know that we will pay what we agreed to pay and we'll take the volume that we agreed to pay and they will they will they may sell if they will go and make some money out of the rest of their crop but they will they will honor us because we have honored our word with them and 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 we do, um, you know, we normally do get what we ask for. I mean, there are times when things go wrong, you know, for sure, and cauliflowers are probably one of the most difficult ones, and purple-spraying broccoli in January and February would be one of the most difficult ones uh, to to manage. But it is it's all dependent on trust, really, and that's trust between us and the grower, but actually trust between us and our customers as well, the people who are buying the veg boxes. You know, and we can... And trust, and you know, genuine information. And if, you know, if we explain why we don't have cauliflowers, you know, people are pretty happy um, to accept that. And uh, so, yeah, we do. We we do maintain a stable price. We do take. You know, we will. Our boxes are the same price throughout the year, the most expensive time for vegetables. Actually, you know, you'd probably be quite surprised, but well, maybe you wouldn't be, but most people would be surprised. The most expensive time is actually the start of the UK season, because <laughs> at the beginning, it's quite, you know, you have to work harder to get a crop essentially, and you often do at the end as well. And that's when, you know, we will pay more and, you know, we'll take less of a margin Um and then the easiest time is is the kind of late summer and autumn, and we'll probably take a slightly mar- larger margin then to kind of make up for it.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, which I guess uh, makes sense, but must be challenged. Just thinking as a restaurateur, you know, because it drives us bonkers. You know, I mean, lemons are a bad example, because we don't grow them locally. But the fact that they can go from you know kind of twelve pound a box to forty pound a box depending on what, in the year when you're buying them, and all you're doing is putting them in somebody's gin and tonic, and you can't <laughs> you can't double the price of the gin and tonic because lemons have gone up. So it's a yeah, yeah it's about. Mm, over ninety percent of what we
1: put in the box will be, will come from a grower that we know well, and will be on a pre-arranged contract. And almost always, it's someone that we've dealt with for, for many, many years. And that is absolutely unique. In the fresh produce industry right. our local growers um south devon organic producers whom know are about 16 members of the co-op now they um we actually have the contract as a seven-year contract so wow, <laughs> really? it would take us either of a seven year that is really kind of exceptional within and not wow. only that is that no one looks at it anyway it just lives in the bottom drawer but no oh, one because it's all just based on on trust now but um it's taken us a long long time to get there we did we've tried to do the same thing with fish and i I have to say it's been very very difficult um uh some of the fishermen we work with will probably say that we didn't do what we said we would do i would say they didn't do (laughs) what they said we never got to that point where we trusted each other well enough and it's you know the fish trade is very murky isn't it there's a huge amount of black fish sold you know that, you know, the quota system is... By everyone's catch, dodging. Quotas, it's, yeah, it's you know, such a it's, mess. So you're, you're into, a, even before you start, you're into a very, very murky system yeah. where everyone's lying to everyone else. And we just... We haven't really been able to break through that. And the only way that we've got close, I would say, is by actually, you know, buying... you know, And we couldn't agree on what a sustainable fish was either. But, I mean, it's very, very difficult. And we, so we ended up just selling line caught from day boats. You know, so yeah. that is probably impractically harsh in terms of our criteria of what a sustainable fish is and the truth is we're farmers we don't know about fishing you know, who are we to say what a sustainable fishes? but that was the only thing that anyone could agree with yeah and so you you had to so you're never going to have continuity of supply. so yeah. that the, and so we actually played around with freezing it yeah and and we found that actually if it was frozen really well and really quickly and held at a really low temperature the eating quality was every bit as good it's fresh fish, and that's so that's what we've done. But still, it's been difficult.
0: Yeah, no, it is really complicated. Yeah. Fish move, basically. Not only do they move. I mean, animals move around in a field, maybe mm. from field to field, but fish move around the globe, you know? And yeah. uh, it's it's really complicated. It yeah, is. Vegetables must be easier. Um, I interviewed Mitch Tonks a couple of weeks ago, who um, a very good fish chef, mm. and he agrees 100%. You know, freezing fish actually is part of the solution Yeah, so the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, rather than the issue. Yeah. So uh, I could talk to you about all of that, um, you know for for days because it, it does blow my mind the complexity and I, I worry slightly about if it's so complicated how are we ever going to resolve it i hope more and more people buy veg boxes direct because it seems to bypass a lot of the sort of bullshit and sort out and just get what they're given rather than going in and tweaking and i never really appreciated i used one of your competitors some time ago where i could go in and i actually thought that was really good that i could go in every week and change whatever i wanted god knows how they managed the complexity of it behind the scenes but now you know i'm a customer and i love just getting whatever rocks up those was it R- R- romanesco's was yeah. it Last yeah. couple of weeks, yeah. never had them before. They're they're amazing, and the oh, fact right. that you yeah. can just no, really you can good. just break off the florets and eat them in a salad. They don't even yeah. need to be cooked. You yeah. know, I'm 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 not. This isn't like an advert for you, but I just bloody love the fact that I'm eating what I give. In. And I actually like to go into restaurants and do that, and just say, look, just send me out what chef says is good, basically. No, so well, been, that's
1: absolutely my my favorite way to eat in a, in a restaurant is what we do at the field kitchen it is a, you know it's a set menu there's a vegetarian yep. option yeah and if you're gluten intolerant we'll deal with that but yep. pretty much it's a set option and it will be brought to the table in large bowls and nice. uh, you know you'll share it with whoever yeah, you I wish I could do to. it
0: in the restaurant I really do you know we we we're, we're difficult because you know we're right on the beachfront one of our places and it, and it is a really eclectic mix of people coming in from you know some people just use us because we're convenient and, and you know burgers and fish and chips are popular some people
1: coming The back. only way we've made it work is really by in the end we did try to kind of vary the offer and be more flexible and whatever but in the end that's what we do we do it mm. really damn well you yeah. know it's all about vegetables at the star and it's not a good place to come from an in, intimate candlelit dinner yeah. with your new girlfriend yeah, or something. Exactly. Don't come to the yeah. field kitchen, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, I, but it just—if you want to come as a large family group, you know, crossing three generations and eat on a big long table yeah, and take I mean, three yeah. hours having your lunch with your children running around outside—is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But it doesn't suit everybody. occasionally. and I know it sounds like for you, you know, you have to accommodate a much more kind of diverse you know people with more diverse expectations and i suppose we took the decision that We weren't going to try and do that, and it was a bit of a struggle, but now people know what we do, and if that's what they want, they come to us. If they want something else, they go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and
0: I'm guessing you're not going to try and roll out 200 of them across the country and no, make it. A thing definitely so not. You've I did, enough, I got
1: approached by quite a few restaurateurs. We won a lot of awards in the early days, yeah. We were losing loads of money, but everyone thought we were one, <laughs> yeah. <that's standard laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah so, P yeah. and and I did think about it, but. No, I'm no, not, not and, remotely. And,
0: and somebody in the industry. And in fact, yeah. Mark Hicks, who I also interviewed not long ago, his advice to anybody thinking of opening a restaurant, particularly at the moment, was just don't. It's a particularly hard time. Um, yeah. I can't leave without asking you um, just on this, this last topic because you really put your uh, money where your mouth is. You talked about capitalism and being kind of anti-capitalist. Mm. And I love the quote that I read talking about people coming and offering you money to roll out stuff when you said that um, I think you would rather sell one of your daughters to a brothel <laughs> than actually accept some of the cash that was being offered. Well, so the most recent thing you did was, was I don't know if it's give away your company, but you became an employee-owned company. Can you just yeah, tell us about that a yeah, little bit? I didn't.
1: I, I, I sold it to, you the, sold staff it to the staff yes. over a long period of time. So, uh, And I did sell it. at a, I, uh, I worked out what I thought I needed to live on for the rest of my life comfortably yeah Yeah, as much money as i thought would make no difference if i had any more and then i doubled it
0: <laughs> <laughs> just in case
1: just in case i had done yeah. my sums wrong. but it was still a lot and less than actually, you could have got yeah and that actually came to four million quid so wow. you know and i will take that over a period of years but yep. you know i'm a very wealthy person and you know nothing no money i have complete confidence no more money would make me any happier but that did have, adopting that attitude which i know some people would find challenging did mean that i could sell the business for that whereas the um you know the accountants valued it at i think 22 million yeah so i took about a fifth or less of the um of the the market value and and which has made it i didn't want to leave it in financial distress really so and and as it happens, you know, we've done really well. We probably, got, probably could have charged a bit more but bumper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now the staff own the business. Well, they own 74%. I did keep a 26% stake largely because they wanted me to. Didn't, when they want to be reassured that I wasn't going to run off to a Caribbean island or something and customers felt similarly. Yeah. And so now they, you know, essentially have control of the business. They take the profits of the business. And, you know, they're in control of their own destiny. And it is ju- it's is—it's just bloody marvellous. I mean, it really is. They are doing so well. You know, the the culture at work has changed. I mean, not automatically. We have actually invested a lot in encouraging people to take more responsibility for their actions, really, and, and, and encouraging managers not to think that they have, you know, that they're the only people who can make a decision. We're encouraging managers to listen And and, um, co-owners, you know, on the shop floor in the fields to feel confident that, you know, if they make suggestions, they will be listened to. And it is, I mean, we are doing fantastically well. I mean, it it is just astonishing. I just think business and, well, not just business, our organizations are just so wasteful of our potential as human beings. I think we're capable of so much more. Than you know we give each other credit for, and I think within this setup, you know we it's you know it's absolutely fantastic. I was on the streets of London yesterday, actually. I've got to say, and um, outside Westminster with the Extinction Rebellion, quite a lot of people from our area have gone up there, yeah. and I watched them make a decision. They were sitting outside Defra, and they decided in the end after this. Uh, dispersed kind of leadership techniques they had, where they had a meeting that they were going to move somewhere else, and um, it's just phenomenal the how they did that with such sort of harmony. They didn't agree on everything, but they managed to come to a decision pretty quickly and enact it. And enact it so quickly, the police, you know, have a very hierarchical leadership structure, <laughs> just didn't know what to do with them. I mean, the police are completely at sea. I mean, I think I've, the police that I spoke to are incredibly actually respectful of them we don't need to live in this highly structured hierarchical way we can there are better ways of making decisions is what i'm saying and and in all sorts of ways but i think particularly in business and particularly at a time where a successful business needs to be flexible and responsive and able to change quickly and ideally you know to be able to handle complexity which i think we do very well and with the only way we can do that is by having really engaged staff so the employee ownership has really contributed to that and i uh, if anyone out there who's thinking about selling their business i would really encourage them to look at employee ownership i mean it has just been brilliant yeah.
0: it looks amazing i think the biggest concern that some people would have presumably would be this uh, sort of you know the the paralysis of analysis for sort of running a company democratically and, yeah. and you always wanting to do um, the opposite to you know just deliberately because you said yeah, you were potentially no. childish yeah, no, no, have you still I, got I'm, the freedom to I'm, do it i'm or? i'm probably the worst co-owner in
1: the business actually because i am I'm, I'm you know i don't think i am brilliant at at consultation, really. I tend to be impetuous. Often and often the way with. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so often, you know, yeah, yeah. that's the way entrepreneurs often are like that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. the, that thing about paralysis by analysis, drowning in consultation was a phrase that I heard in the early days quite a lot. And actually, it was, you know, this idea that people in the boardroom are the only people who have the sophistication and the decision making. We're all human beings, you know, and, and actually, it was our staff who really raised this when we were going through that. A lot of people were saying, one of them, biggest questions was isn't this going to slow down decision making are we going to be able to be you know as commercially successful because we'll just sit around forever making decisions by which time the world will have moved on it's not like that at all it hasn't slowed down decision making one bit in fact I would say it speeded it up it, it doesn't have to be like that no. I mean it's about how it's about how you do it and there are now loads and loads of uh you know, I do think the Extinction Rebellion have got a lot of lessons to teach the world. I'm yeah. going to get them to come and talk to Riverford because I yeah. think we could learn a lot from them. We There are much, much better ways of organizing ourselves than, than the paradigm that we've had, certainly for my life. Anyway, this sort of hierarchical thing, it just doesn't work anymore. Mm. It just really, it's outdated
0: and um, I think it's kind of doomed, actually. I really hope, guy, that you live another two hundred years because you've got so many <laughs> ideas that, that 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 should be implemented um, that are just going to take some time. So, uh, which talking of time, I'm very conscious of the fact you need to get to a shop and buy some ingredients for dinner. So, although At I shop, could go, shop, go to the fields and pick them, are you going to pick before, them? Before okay, even dark. even better uh, before it gets cool. dark and you don't have long left. So, although I I could uh, continue chatting about it, I guess my biggest thing, my plea would be, um, you know, maintain that that energy. I hope now that you've you've uh, sold some of the business and I know you've got a little bit more time that that frees up your time to continue you know your everybody should go and watch your guys rants youtube channel where you talk about these issues very succinctly actually in sort of four or five minutes on each one you get a phenomenal amount of information across Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what the solutions are at the moment. You're you're really helping with uh, with understanding the challenge and understanding the issues. And I think the veg boxes are brilliant and I hope more people do it. I'm just concerned of, and I'm a deluded optimist, so I'm normally super upbeat, but the problem looks so massive. Yeah, I don't know where we start in some ways in resolving it, but I hope you bloody work it out because it looks like you're really focused on it. So thank Change you.
1: Change can, I mean, I completely agree. That is, you know, the challenges are huge. The, the pace yeah. of progress is nowhere near fast enough. But change can happen really, really quickly. I mean, and, you know, I think we could be on the cusp of seeing, uh, you know, some really quick change. I think there are a lot of very disillusioned people who want to see something different. There's just a question
0: of them having a voice. Mm. No, I think you're right. I think we we could be on the cusp and Extinction Rebellion are a great example of going, look, enough of being nice and just talking about it. Although, to be fair, their approach is great in the fact that it's about doing things peacefully. I mean, you know, we're going to change the world. with yoga on the bridge. I just love it. It's <laughs> kind of like, you know, yeah, it's we're going to love each other into change rather than, yeah, than kind of you know, fighting. So it is great. Um, where should people go if they want to follow you or they want to follow Riverford? Where's the best place for people to go? Or are you going to say, no bloody idea, because you're the crazy entrepreneurial one who won't know the website address. But <laughs> uh, Well, we're, you know,
1: riverford.co.uk. Is, is the website and their links to the videos and the publications from all, there all over there yeah are
0: you all are you prolific on any particular social media channel yourself or uh,
1: personally this- i don't do social media a lot of things that i do and say end up on social media but yeah I, it's it's kind of a selfish thing that the quite early on the the particular element of well Anyway, the, 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 there are some fairly nasty sides of humanity which I think I, I'm afraid I. Found. I experienced on social media early on, and I just decided I didn't want anything to do with it, so I don't do Don't blame you. It. Good idea, but people yeah. can
0: find you and they can see it all, yeah. and you've got some great yeah. stuff online. I'll put some uh, some info in the show notes as well, um, where people can find you on humansofhospitality.co.uk. I we will do have back- a fantastic online newsletter, which
1: well, uh, new, yeah. that we uh, called WikiLeaks actually, yeah. which has Brilliant. a lot Love of on it. Not everything I agree with on it, yeah which <laughs> <laughs> is good. We don't, don't all have to agree, yeah. um but
0: it's uh, yeah, no, I think that is great. Yeah. yeah. Well, the information you send out, we spoke about this and i'm going to leave it i'm going to dangle it as a carrot and not not explain it again because you've got to go but this this uh, sterilization of soil and 2,000 liters of diesel per hectare being used on organic farming just go and google that and find the uh, the little newsletter where you talk about it because it's mind-blowing other search engines are available oh yes of course yeah there's one <laughs> where i think they even plant a tree if you look on it you're right we use that as a word now guy thank, thank you so sure. much uh, it's really appreciated thank you wow. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned and we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice. That would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be out with another episode next Monday.